Hello, welcome to CarCast. I'm Matt, the moderator, Deandra, here with Bill Goldberg. How are you? I'm great, man. You know, a fluctuation of temperature, about 30 degrees, uh, about two hours apart. Welcome to Texas. I, I feel like we're still just coming off of summer. I can't believe it's getting cold already, but uh, obviously we don't get a, quite that out here. In, no, we went in straight Atlanta. into winter, but I'm fine with that. Like I said, you know, like over 40 days in a row of over 100 degrees, uh, everyone needs a break. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it gets it, it's hot. Listen, as someone who came from Arizona a, a million years ago, it's and I go back regularly, it's um. Weather's nuts. Uh, you're all bundled up and you're. I, I kind of, it was a little. Is it 70? Yeah, I mean, it might be like 68 degrees. <laughs> so, yeah, I've got, got a, but I'm still wearing shorts. So that's the thing is I just layer the top half. Sure. Um, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. Our good friend, Jonathan Ward. Uh, welcome back to the show, Jonathan from Icon and TLC and a number of other things. How are you, Jonathan? You know, I could bitch and moan, but I'm just going to leave it at I'm grand. Who wants to hear my nonsense anyway? It's nice to see you again, my friend. It's been a while. I, I'm trying to think back to maybe some of the first episodes of CarCast you, that you were on. Uh, th- I Maybe when we started, it could have been very early on. You know, when did you start Icon? Uh, about almost 10 years ago now. Yeah, so it was probably right around then because it must have been 10 years. We've been doing this, I don't know, 14 and a half years, well, Bill and I, for about four and a half years. But it feels well, like maybe longer than that. Maybe you even came I'm on wrong. with TLC before that, but I'm not quite sure. No, you, I'm just you an know idiot. your first Bronco. I misled you. We started earlier. Time flies when you're having fun, I suppose. Yeah, I think we, we launched the brand in uh, about 07. So, yeah, I think I remember we brought, I had a Thriftmaster on the show. And we took it for a fun drive. I think we had a Derelict, we had an FJ, and we had a Bronco over the years. Yeah, quite a bit. Um, Let's back up a little bit and kind of talk about how you uh, how you kind of got into this. So TLC is the uh, the the Land Cruiser, what do we call it, a service center? It's a, uh, it was sort of the uh, original company. What were you doing with Land Cruisers? How would you so the uh, world's largest and long-running shop dedicated specifically to Toyota Land Cruisers, which could be, over the years, everything from sales, service, parts, restoration, engine conversions, and then eventually even some uh, prototype development work for Toyota. So we were, uh, we did the, I designed the first three pre-production vehicles that eventually became the FJ Cruiser. And TLC is a blast. It's killing it now. So we relocated it to Charlotte, North Carolina, where they actually welcome businesses, which is a novel concept <laughs> in, here in Los Angeles. Yeah. And uh, oh, it's so good, man. We could we're doing stuff there we could have never gotten away with here. So like in-house high-tech paint booth, powder coating, upholstery, so many things that in California we can't even get the application to get a permit for all constructed all under one roof big team growing there and it's doing really good and it was getting tough for me i think trying to manage two religions out of one church because when we started icon it's a completely different sort of ethos or approach while i was having a blast with tlc after a while i kind of felt like i built a low ceiling room in the definition of the brand and as an industrial designer, I just wanted to geek out and explore so many other things. So that's when we launched Icon. We tried to run them here with separate crews. And we're a big facility, we're about 100,000 square. But it was just tough. Either either one was drawing on the vine while I focused on the other or vice versa. So we're, we're stoked to have uh, met up with Daniel and built the team there. So now the LA facility is specifically Icon. And people don't know who the heck I am other than some dude who just started talking, Icon's idea is revisiting classic transportation design in a modern context. So TLC is doing all the dedicated original with mods or without Land Cruisers. And then Icon is a little bit crazier. So we've got basically three production models using the term somewhat loosely based on the first generation Bronco 
four variations of the first generation Toyota Land Cruiser. And then we do the Thriftmaster, as we call it, which is the 47 to 53 Chevy pickup. And then we do the Freaks and Geeks, a wide range of one-offs that we define as either derelicts or reformers. Derelicts are my happy place where they look like crap, somewhat abandoned timer and patina. We scan them, get them into CAD, convert all the polygons into surface data, and then re-engineer everything from the ground up. But with the goal being that we did, if you look at it, you'd hardly know we did anything. But then they're, you know, four-wheel independent, Brembo's, and all state-of-the-art mechanical. And then some people think that's just that shit. They go, why would I spend all that money on some looks like crap? So for those folks, we have what we call the reformers, where they're redesigned and elevated, but generally within the original design language or era of design kind of history remixed. Um, we just geek out on all the little details and those are concourse perfect. And yeah, that's kind of the short answer of what the hell we do at Root. TLC and Icon, as we were talking about coming on the show, you were coming on the show, you know, over a decade ago. You kind of started in this game before everybody else did. And I don't want to get into this, like, who did it first and what's catching on and, and whatever, whatever. But uh, what you were doing with TLC and the Land Cruisers was way before those trucks are even getting a lot of attention. And now they've blown up for sure. And even the modified ones for sure, but even on the restoration side, just getting a good quality truck brought back up to 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 spec is pulling huge money at car auctions and and they're not just showing up at you know little car auctions they're showing up at you know RMs and Goodings now and they're pulling six figures and 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 you guys kind of had your hand in that before that even happened so uh to hear that TLC's grown over the years doesn't surprise me it just you were you were ahead of it you probably could have even waited three or four years and then started it and been like, boy, it's easier. <laughs> no, it was better in the beginning because I could just, I would, they were easy to buy because no one gave a shit. You know, it's <laughs> like with both brands, people thought I was completely crazy, which now I'm learning is a good sign. But uh, yeah, we uh, proud to have, uh, well, I can't even call it pride because it wasn't some great intellect or foresight. It was just some kind of a, passionate creative goobers so they were both hobbies gone awry that i bailed on my actual career path and turned my hobby into a business and then turned my next hobby into a business and i continue that perversion to this day and it's it's good fun beats a real job how long is how long has tlc been in, in business tlc started back wow in 1995 yeah. Two years before I had my first three FJ40s. Nah. Or no, sorry if I impacted years, the price. Three years after I had my FJ40. Oh, okay, like, good. You beat the rush. Yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, only the same as it was back in the day when you could buy those things uh, and every uh, time you open up your paper. I miss the days of the thrifty nickel and the recycler. Yeah. Like I had the local distributor, this little Mexican dude in old Hilux, and I, I waited at my local newsstand back in the 90s for him to show up at like 4.30 in the morning at the newsstand. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, yo, venga, what's up, baby? Where, where do you start? All right, if I give you 100 bucks cash, where do we meet that's closest to the printer? <laughs> at, at like 3.30, 4 a.m. On, on Thursdays, I would meet him on the side of the road. He'd have a bundle of them for all the California counties, literally hot off the press. And I'd sit there in the dark in my 65 Ford pickup and I learned to recognize the first three digits of, okay, that's Burbank, right? That's Pasadena. I'd circle all the best stops, wait till a relatively reasonable hour and then call people up. And man, I'd be, I'd be done and golden by noon. And then I used to have, it was a great excuse for road trips. You're yeah. a freak. You're, you, I mean, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of old car guys have those stories. Mine was that every time I go on the road to wrestle in these small towns, usually, well, it was a non-televised event. They were called house shows. So you'd have three or four of them a week. Every single time I pulled into town, 
I'd go to the local 7-Eleven and pick up the auto trader. And there are four or five cars that I've got in here that I bought through that process. Uh, those were the days, boys. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now I can't buy shit. Yeah. Prices have like tripled or quadrupled, and it's so hard to be the early bird anymore. So talking about Icon, um, I don't remember what you showed up with first, but uh, the Bronco was pretty significant. Um, there is, uh, listen, even I, whether we did it on camera or not, I don't even recall, but but we geeked out on that car, on that truck for maybe an hour in the parking lot, just going. And that was at the very early stages where you're like, you know, this is all done pretty much for the first time billet grills and hinges and mirrors and door handles and and just being able to just being able to rethink those pieces and machine those pieces and and now now look at you know with 3d printing and scanning and and all the things we've we've sort of evolved over the last decade but uh the first bronco you brought over is way ahead of its time and you know like you said 10 12 years ago you know, but before every other brand popped up, you know, honestly, S Singer was very early on. I remember them coming on the show as well. But but yeah, Icon and Singer are kind of the two that started the, you know, semi-production sort of rethought process yeah. of, we were of like those vehicles. Four years into Icon, Singer started. And we're friendly with them to this day, but we reached out because... My original premise was, I'm not good at leaving things alone. I like modifying them. I like a bother. I have had classics in my collection over the years to the point at which it kind of felt like martyrdom to tolerate the archaic mechanical and then even crazier to my brain. When people do like a concourse restoration, they'll repeat the errors of the factory with the, you know, the little ghost of overspray or the raw metal spots. And I'm like, Mm, okay, I get it, but like, you know, there was pro tour and pro street hot rods through other like all these defined segments and sectors in automotive design, and it's like everyone felt like they had to fall into a rut and 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 comply with that. So my idea was try and get the the traditional sort of hot rod culture shop mom and pop shop out of the Stone Age. So to take advantage of all of the technology we have. Back then, it was pretty limited. Scans sucked. 3D printing didn't exist. But basically, just utilizing CAD and being able to do emulations in CAD and then taking inspiration, say, from architecture or furniture or watches or other segments of design and applying them to areas that really in automotive design were kind of not thought through. Um, and, and again, it, 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 it was just logical for me, because I have no proper degrees. I'm not trained or authorized in, in any regard by any means, but that turned out to kind of be the secret sauce because I didn't know better. So I just took my love for all aspects of design and, you know, serial craftsmen my entire life, be it furniture making, be it uh, pre-Raphaelite painting, be it sculpture, the uh, leather craft, apparel design. And really, if you think about it, transportation design is like an extroverted combination of all of those crafts. Mm -hmm. And it becomes such a great communication tool and conversation starter that I just started geeking out and building cars for myself. Then I started floating my mortgage on it when times were slow in my main career. And it just evolved over time. My wife and I were on vacation in South Africa, bitching and moaning about how we hated our career paths. And over a bottle of wine, we decided to turn the hobby into a business. So we got home, we both quit our jobs, and the rest is history. Passion yep. creativity. It's good fun. Yeah. I actually you you brought up a good point. Is automotive is such a unique outlet because it can combine so many different aspects of artistry, right? So many. Like if yeah. if if you just want to get into the interior design, the leather, the sewing, the materials, the, you know, like you, you could, you could build an entire career off of that. And, and we've seen it happen, you know, and famously, you know, like Gabe's or something like that, you know, 
that's that's what they do. Some people just paint. Some people just machine and design wheels. Like there's there's entire not just companies but industries built around one aspect of it, right? We're all going to be heading off to SEMA pretty soon. And there's an entire building of wheels and tires, right? <laughs> you know, there's there's 300,000 square feet of just wheels. <laughs> I know? never got the wheel industry. There's yeah. so many cool designs and then they all come out with the same crap and just change a chamfer at best. It's like, how on yeah. earth is there enough room for that many companies to eke out an existence? Just nuts. There's so few that are like, pioneering or differentiated like the guys at hre are friends and we've done some one-off hres and then wheel pros have become good friends over the years so now in california we manufacture our own forged wheels with their sponsorship and it's it's fun but now what a complicated crowded little sector that is that building man you can get your steps in just in that darn building it's nuts yeah yeah and you're right it, it does oftentimes seem like a lot of the same thing. And then every once in a while, you get a little glimpse at some innovation, you know, use of carbon fiber and and some some different types of, well, you know, you mentioned HRE. HRE did some stuff in carbon fiber. They have their carbon fiber barrel wheels. But when you go down, you take a look at their 3D printed titanium, which looks like gotcha. some kind of crazy, you know, geiger designed alien-esque type of thing and i get it they did it because they wanted to come up with a design that you couldn't machine like if we're going to 3d print and we're going to 3d print titanium it's got to be a crazy design that you couldn't you couldn't make with a cnc machine and i forget the name of the company but i love it when when someone does break out with like a novel design language but there's one guy i follow on instagram and he's all geeked out on like the old turbo vein wheels and doing them for like a ridiculous range of applications and like bringing that early language back and they're so cool yeah and and refine that stuff i i i sat down a while back with dave merrick um uh, i know you know dave it. uh yeah. dave's the I, I don't know his title today he's like the global head of design for honda and acura and it's funny because when we talk about dave on the other podcasts uh uh he's a regular on shift and steer as well is He's he's a car designer, but he's a designer of yeah. of all things. And yeah. every event I go to, Dave is there. And I don't know how racing events, Ren Sport, and you walk around with him, and he'd be like, "Oh, I I did the design on that, or I I talked to Joey Cavallari and I redesigned the graphics on the one-off Seinfeld Porsche, you know, whatever." And I did this, and I go, "David, like ten years, you you." You didn't tell me about the shit you've been doing at Honda at Acura. And he's like, well, there's always that because that's my job. But he does all of this other stuff. I have uh, a theory that there are three Dave Merrick's. There has to be, right? There and have to be. I was at some like new watch brand startup private dinner. And of course, who's sitting next to me? It's Dave. I'm like, Dave. oh, hi again. Yeah. Yeah. He invited us to the to the Lions Museum, the Drag Race Museum. And he's oh, like, yeah. oh, you got to come down here. We're doing the first like gala event. We're going to honor uh, Ed Eskadarian and and Don Perdome. And I was like, OK. He's like, yeah, because I designed a lot of the museum. I was like, oh, OK. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then he's like, come out to Pomona for NHRA drag racing. And and we went down and we're talking to Ron Caps, and Ron Caps comes over. It's his second year owning a team, right? And his first year, he wins the championship. And he goes over to Dave and he brings him a championship trophy. And he's like, we won this last year. We had another one reproduced. So it's for you. And you, so you're part of the championship team. And I was like, because Dave designed the cars and the trucks and the rigs and everything for and the, the trophy Napa. probably as well. Caps team. Yeah. Mean, and, and he did it for like four other teams. But uh, I, talking with him about sort of the design aspect of of how how kind of automotive gets to touch all of those different things as as a young designer he did the tail lights on the Acura NSX and now as a seasoned designer he designed the NSX <laughs> you, know, and the you know what though <laughs> even even okay fine in some cases tenure gets you to that point but i think it's it's actually relatively sad and I see a lot of incredible talent leaving transportation design. 
because it's so compartmentalized and segmented and like the guy who did the visors never meets the girl who did the armrests and one's mm -hmm. in germany one's in shejing one's in la like there and i think it's it's sad right because if you if you i've always said like paint them black take the logos off or vinyl wrap all the ridiculously large modern logos on cars Take every four-door sedan and put them in a big white warehouse. Invite the general public in. And I bet you 90% of the populace would not differentiate and know what's what. Because this, it's become so reactive and so copycat. And like in the old days, a DeSoto, a Chrysler, a Dot, they, were, they reflected a different vibe and purpose. Because the car company had the balls to let one person run that division and create the aesthetic and the continuity. And it's just, to me, it's a great opportunity for goobers like me, but at the same time as an industry and having worked directly with Ford and Hyundai and Kia and Toyota and different brands over the years, I always felt like there's a missed opportunity to like go back to the roots and like, okay, for better or worse, this person's the final say on everything. So it's going to reflect an opinion or a personality. But they end up so like, these top designer buddies of mine will be like, yeah, screw it. I'm out. I'm going to Nike or I'm going to go to something, some other sector. Because even when they are able to build an incredible team and there's cohesion in, in, in the approach to the design, then these OEMs bring in focus groups. What are focus groups? People that have nothing, you know, that are stoked to get free donuts and a Target gift card to sit there and wax poetic and bitch about the size of the cup holder. And then they derail an incredibly gifted design team's efforts for years sometimes to respond to focus groups or outside marketing. It's like, oh my God, just just let it stand for something instead of playing it so darn safe, right? Yeah, I agree. I think I think it was a while back I was talking to Ian Callum, who's a longtime designer at you know, Aston Martin and Jaguar. And now he's doing his own thing, sort of a design consultancy and kind of reimagining some of the designs like the Vanquish and stuff that he put his hands on. Yeah, back I saw in the day. his new car at uh, the Quail. Yeah. And and I like Ian uh, Callum a lot, but it was getting to the point where he was just like, my hands are tied. Like I can put pen to paper and then not even just committee, just regulations, just like now I can't do this with mirrors and the grill has to be a certain height. And, and, you know, I, I was looking at the Aston Martin DB nine and I was like, you know, this came out in 2005. It's got such a swoopy kind of nose in the front and it's kind of coming down. I was like, honestly, it's like, how did you pull that off? And he's like, you know, that big giant plastic license plate frame nub that comes off the front of the Aston Martin. It, it holds the license plate. And he goes, the car is technically crash tested with that on there. And that's what got it to pass that like clipping of your shins kind of thing. Like the certain, he goes, cause the nose comes down too much. He goes, but when you put that on, that makes it pass. So if you, oh, you gotta love it. And, and, and that's a dealer installed it. item. <laughs> um, I have a question. When we talk about regulations and design, have you guys had the opportunity to dive in and get a straight answer as to how the hell the Cybertruck certified? No, but I don't know that it is, right? I, where are we with the Cybertruck? Like, it's because just, of the it's, weight class? I got to ask Franz. He's he's going to bring the Cybertruck to our event, and um, I, I want to. I just I want to know the answer. I know the weight class sometimes gets them out of it. It does, right? So it's massive and it's going to be, it, it, essentially you can title it, not in every state, but you can register it as farm equipment, right? Because it's it's massive. You can do it with the Humvee. You can do it with some of the larger Range Rovers. And, and you know, there are some tax benefits and leasing and whatever. Yeah. I don't whatever know all the details. Those guys that bought AM General, like, are the remnants thereof? Like, didn't they end up buying... They bought the rights to the H1, all the tooling, I think even the old facility, and they were going to relaunch it. And the whole time I'm thinking, okay, it's heavier than hell, so they're going to get exempt from a bunch of shit, but not everything. You ever, you ever know yeah, I, I don't know what's going to happen there because the 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 full like H1 uh, got a weird bad rap. It's like in our country, we love SUVs, but then all of a sudden people were like tagging them on dealer lots because yeah. – 
the, the environmentalists were like, it's too big and it's too noisy and it's too diesel-y. And, and, and I was like, I don't even know what those things mean, but uh, uh, it, it doesn't didn't really make a lot of sense. So now, they I don't know. I mean, a big fuss. And I think they were going to do hydrogen or electric or hybrid variant or something like that in the effort to green it. But I was sad because right when Hummer died of that sociopolitical situation moment in time, right, where they were sort of labeled as the worst of the worst in the gas girls of the planet. And I'm sure there were a lot of countries that obviously it represented because it showed up with major guns mounted on it. So that didn't help. But what what is odd to me is now this single-minded focus that electric is going to be the solution. It's just going to create a whole nother shit show. What is it about modern man, modern culture that like we can only stop in long enough to digest one magic bullet without realizing it's got to be a portfolio of diverse approaches. Like it's so odd to me, especially California now with like we see all our friends. I'm sure you see, you know, media, Lieberman and all shit, even Farley you know, getting stuck because our charge network is an absolute joke, not to mention the mining and the true cost of production. It's like, and then a lot of these charge stations have a diesel generator on the other side of the hill. Boy, I was yeah. like, what, what the hell are we doing? Oh my God, we're so stupid. We just are. Well, so any individuality is frowned upon these days in, in any way, shape or form, I believe. So it, it, it's not uh, immune to the car industry also. Yeah, no, it's a cultural issue. I, I think I, it's our collective ADHD. Which, know you know, single-minded was was a good term to use because, uh, I mean, not to turn this, you know, into a different direction, but but politics is what's driving that, and they use the media to make it happen. And I, I just feel like so many politicians uh, have watched too many movies or TV shows going, the people don't know what they want until we tell them what they want. It was like, the people are not that dumb. Like people can kind of make their own decisions on a lot of things. And the, the push for EV was really kind of weird because it felt more like politicians needed something to rally around, which was sort of a new stance on things right you can you can talk guns you can talk abortion you can talk all this stuff again and again but they needed like a new thing and then they used the media to push it to consumers and convince consumers it was the thing instead of going to the car companies and then the car companies had to react to this media and this consumer demand they forced the car companies by pushing this agenda to the media right and then and then Consumers are going, where's our electric cars? But it's not the answer. It is an option, but it's certainly not the answer. And yes, I think when you sit down and you have a real conversation with the administration of these car companies, I think they would tell you there are plenty of other options that now good luck getting the people to get behind yeah not necessarily people that listen to this show right they're enthusiasts everybody here has a very good idea of options such as e-fuels and hydrogen and other variants hydrogen, out there yeah you know, you know there's, this, there's there's a new upstart called croft and originally they wanted to focus on just hydrogen generation and they came up with in essence what could be private business municipal or even home viable uh hydrogen plants and and it's it's really one of the first times that the the net energy is a gain not a loss for splitting out the atoms they're having the hardest time raising money so then what happens okay well to raise money you have to do what 99 percent of the now bankrupt ev upstarts did which is we're going to get fleet. We're going to do retrofits to get UPS and FedEx, which almost never happens, but it gets them the funding. But then when it doesn't happen, they tank. And But but it's like that's what the VC model wants to hear is, is that same formula. So I think they're really onto something, and I've been supporting them and in conversation with them for years. In fact, Roderick, one of the founders, is uh, we're going to lunch next week. He's going to be out in L.A. But I, I think... It's got to be a multi-pronged and diverse approach. We've done several EVs here, 
And they've ranged from like fundamentally boring, but they get the job done to just a downright hoop, like the old Merck hoop we did. Yeah. It was a beast. And then now we're dumping a considerable amount of money and energy into offering electric versions of all of our vehicles. But to be frank, that's more of a responding to the, just like the, our version of how the big car companies had to respond to the consumer demand. But oftentimes, like you said, I feel the consumer is not educated. They're, they're just picking up the narrative from mass media, which I guess that's the new world period. <laughs> so what, what are you going to be doing? What's going to be your 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 drivetrain for EVs when you start getting into more of a sort of a quote unquote semi production version of of your vehicles with the EV option? You know, we prototyped several different things, and we absolutely hemorrhaged money and lost our ass on the Mercury Coupe that we did because I wanted to go above and beyond what the aftermarket retro general ev world does which in my opinion and i get why is kind of like a do-it-yourself it's easy you just put one two three components in and they wanted to chase price point but for the sake of safety reliability longevity data share serviceability like all that shit makes me super nervous so we actually ended up and there was actually something I did not want to do, but in the end, nothing could beat the analytics and the numbers and the performance. So we're going to go with an all-wheel drive solution based out of the largest of the Tesla motors uh, altered and then basically modified to run through CV shafts to tolerate the angle to our solid axle platform because uh, we didn't want to get so invasive as to get into like in-wheel hub motors, which I know for most applications suck because of the of the unsprung weight, but hell, I'd be displacing Dana's sixties. So like, that's cool. I'll take the weight of a couple of magnets. Still going to be lighter than our Dana, yeah. but we we also had to be conscious of it being as compliant as possible with our production internal combustion versions, so we can be somewhat near relatively efficient. But all wheel drive is going to be badass. Plus, we can emulate different crawl ratios or gear ratios in the settings in the electronics since the gas pedal is basically like a potentiometer like a dimmer switch in your house we can change the feedback based on the amount of input depending on what mode we're in and where the power is displaced and where it's capped so it's pretty exciting and then regenerative braking we get to downsize our brakes and take different approaches there which can allow us an even more retro aesthetic so like when we came out, wheel. yeah, because like we run 18s because I love big brakes and I need big brakes. So I'm running these monstrous Icon Sport brakes designed by Brembo that are absurd. I mean, like a pro football helmet, six piston Cali. <laughs> and like I got my head around it. But then, you know, when we started Icon, as we've established, everyone thought we we're batshit, stupid, crazy. But I felt I had to create a new aesthetic with the FJ that we first launched with, and then even with the first Bronco, to get people to stop and realize it's something different. So we did this like more, I don't know, manly industrial machine kind of vibe. But then flash forward, I'm stoked how many people, if they know the brand, it's amazing how many people know the brand, and then it's even crazier that they know what we stand for. So then I slowly started getting more and more retro and less invasive with the aesthetics. And we created the old school version of our vehicles and then the derelicts. So it's more and more retro. It's more and more under the radar, but the same technology. But I felt it took a while. If I had done that in the beginning, I don't think people would have understood how different the driving experience was versus something stock or approach from the, what I call the Johnny Cash special route where it's, bits and pieces and parts. And then there's like no engineering continuity and gauges from one thing and the steering wheel from another. And like being able to, like you said, the capability of machining and printing now, like everything down to the typography used on those gauges on the grill and everything we can create in house. So it just, it just creates this continuity. And then those same engineering capabilities and resources and technology 
applied to the powertrain, shit, we're able to emulate the drive dynamics and the brake dive and everything and articulation digitally in the cab before we ever pick up a torch or fab anything. And it's such a powerful tool. Isn't it weird though? <laughs> that like Bertone and Fiona Falashi and all the story custom houses in the US and in Europe everywhere. They're all but gone. They're like a plaque on a door at a big automotive company. And like the hardly any of them are even doing personal commissions in a time in which we have never seen a more perfect storm of one-off, low-volume, badass, hyper-efficient technologies that I think would, would create an incredible opportunity for those storied brands to, to make sense of a one-off business model at a way higher standard than before. Like, you seen that British university that came up with, it's like, it's like a five-axis truss system but like even three axis where it just be like an HD plasma cutter head or a torch back in the all day. Now it has like this little high speed ball rotating thingamajigger. And it, it basically is an English wheel on steroids into which you enter your fully dimensioned file. And it has a tensioned piece of steel or aluminum. And that little ball, it changes the force and the speed and the angle of input. And you're like, knock out a perfect panel perfect panel like in zero zero time i mean it's rob rob ida's uh yeah rob, rob ida does the yeah Tucker he just stuff. got he... one of the very first prior to that the only two of them existed one at the university and one owned by ford which they use on pre-production one-off concepts and i'm so jealous i want one they're so badass it, it looks cool if you haven't seen it yet bill so rob posted a, a video he basically took a flat sheet of metal, put it in the machine, and it was like a CNC machine shaping the metal. And he made like kind of this curved, it was like the a nose track front end. It was like yeah, a roaster nose. nose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, if you English wheeled that, I don't care how big of a rock star on the wheel you are, that shit's eight to twelve pieces in weeks. Like, oh, of course, and, and a of shit course. ton of taken. I mean, yeah. we if we start thinking back to you know, the cars that like Boyd Coddington was building, you know, Cadzilla and stuff and, and uh, trying to get any of that shit symmetrical, get one fender to look like the other. It's all on box. It's done by hand. It's multiple pieces welded together and shaped and welded and smooth and shaped. And, and you're like, God, it's so much work. And, and it, continues to be but now we've got sort of two things we've got what you're talking about sort of cnc metal shaping and we've got a lot going on in carbon fiber which i wanted to ask you about because i'm starting to see you know singer's been in carbon fiber for a while gunther works is doing it ring brothers has got a lot going on um speed core they're killing it but they're and, cheating yeah they speed core uh, uh dave salvaggio like there's so much being developed into the carbon fiber world. And it went from small aesthetic pieces to larger pieces to entire bodies of cars. But that's not necessarily super high up on your list, right? Well, like, what are you guys doing in, in, in carbon fiber? Have you, I mean, look, well, you, you don't need to make a carbon mean? fiber Bronco body because it's not like you're trying to save 400 pounds of, of weight on a, on yeah, a Bronco. Yeah. I think that I think at root, that has not got to the point where it makes sense for us in-house. The business model doesn't work. So we are at scale in our little bit, but nowhere near the scale where you can properly amortize the thorough engineering to take on something like that in-house. So like we, we, we partnered with Speedcore. We're doing a 70 Superbird that's got full Hellcat operating system and powertrain and everything. And we did, we redesigned the tail, the entire front flip, and it's all done in carbon by Speedcore. In fact, it's finally almost finished and be coming back for the next phase of work. But the one that I think is most fast, and, and some of the new pioneering uh, centered carbon is quite interesting because it's a recycled product as well, and it's less impacted by the 
crazy fluctuations in carbon fiber pricing. But I think what Lexus was doing with the uh, pretext in the weave carbon fiber 3D dimensioning, I think is super sexy as all hell. But I've also been a fan for years in um, superforming or and hydroforming. Um, but if if I can make a business case for it, I want to do an oval window bug and a bent window pre A three five six based on the same platform, full full carbon bodies, zero reliance on donor cars, all wheel drive gas and all wheel drive electric is just on balls out scratch built cars but i've seen others do this and or try to do this and the problem is you know you're you're talking eight digits if yeah. you're lucky and multiple Perfect. years to properly engineer that it's one thing to say oh i've got a full carbon fiber body and we're building 10 yeah but it's likely like done by the local fiberglass dude who's wet bagging sheets of carbon where you're really not getting the value and the benefit you're getting a pretty weave that once the clear coat cracks you're fucked so i all while i'm chomping at the bit to do it i don't see it being a reasonable business model that i could i could write a pnl and get my wife and ceo to agree to <laughs> <laughs> yeah hey but you brought up an interesting point as well is is like if you're doing a SEMA car, you can do carbon fiber for the sake of carbon fiber. But if you're going to start making five, 10, 15 of these things or more, uh, there needs to be the real benefit of carbon fiber. It can't just be a cosmetic option because you're going to end up with, you're going to end up with heavy carbon fiber, with weak carbon fiber, with inconsistent uh, thickness. Like it's just, it's going to be, it, you might as well just do it in fiberglass if that was the thing. Like, there's no super real benefit to to doing it. It's just uh, bling. And personally, I think the whole exposed weave thing jumped the shark once it showed up with Pep Boys. But I keep being proven wrong, and more and more supercars coming out with it. But the other issue is the way most people approach that is they'll do a scan of the sheet metal part or vehicle, and then copy that and create you know plugs. Well you can't really pull that off because the entire construction ethos is different. So for example, a Ford Bronco, just the darn floor is like 20 pieces spot welded together. So even if you stayed in steel, if you're going to make a case for that of making your own bodies, that means to do it evolved and better and arguably right, you abandon the original manner of construction. And that shit's like, superformed or hydroformed in one piece of steel your precision your longevity your corrosion resistance and then don't even get me started on welding versus some of the high-tech bonding situations mostly by 3m but suddenly all your patch panel resto support parts business model is shot yeah so like companies like dynacorn even you know they they got in a world of hurt because they would like when they came out with a mustang they started, they thought, okay, well, we'll just buy Fomoco sheet metal and we'll just, you know, take measuring tape and some clay, whatever, and reverse it into tooling. What they didn't realize was that on the production line for the Mustang, as well as the Bronco and all Ford product back in the day, the fender guy on the line had an inbox and an outbox. He was given X number of seconds to pull out of the inbox with a stack of shims, get that shit to kind of sort of fit. And if he couldn't make it fit, it went in the outbox. Where did the outbox go? Support parts, Fomoco factory direct. So all the parts, all the parts people were copying were, were not only parts for which the original production line manuals, which I have seen personally, the tolerances were a half an inch, but they were the rejects that couldn't comply with the half an inch tolerance. So it's just like, it just... Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, because I'm pretty oh, sure that's where Cybertruck is right now. <laughs> is yeah, they can't yeah. get any of the panels to fit. <laughs> a lot of challenges with stainless, you know. In the yeah. Philippines, back in the day, they did, there was a small company that was doing stainless Jeeps. And conceptually bitching, but wait a minute, what about the embrittlement factors? What about the stress fractures you get? What about, what about, what about? There's a lot of unique dynamics. Do you ever see any of the old concept cars Ford produced with a partner? And they started as early as I believe the earliest was a 37 Ford coupe, 
and they went as new as a, I think they did a Lincoln Continental T-Bird there, and they're 100% stainless steel. They're badass, but apparently a shit show, so they never went. But, you know, the price of stainless has gone through the basement. We make a lot of our stuff now in stainless because the price of cold rolled is quite close to it, and it's like a trivial jump to just say, screw it, go stainless. Like All my center consoles and a lot of our trim now are done in stainless. Interesting. Why did it drop? I don't know. Um, I do aluminum. Everyone's heard, moving to aluminum. Uh, yeah, I think that exactly. I heard a factor of when Ford made the jump to aluminum that their their consumption is quite notable. So not only did aluminum spike globally and stayed relatively high, but then the demand for stainless went super down. Let's talk about your Suburban. Are you bringing that to SEMA? You know, I'm taking a year off. I'm not going to SEMA this year. Yeah. We've realized for like, really that like media, I always went to SEMA for two reasons. One, car geek. And I'd want to go see all the cool builds. And I would always go to the new products display. And yeah. Always on the hunt for something pioneering, novel and sexy that's applicable. And three was as a PR slut, wanting to make sure we got the brand out there, right? And display cars with Ford or Toyota or on our own or partners, whatever. Um, honestly, I, I don't want to poo on SEMA. It's a great organization, but I haven't seen any innovative products show up in those sectors for years that were applicable to my work. And I'm seeing a lot of the disruptive uh, non-internal combustion powertrain partners are bypassing SEMA and already even members of SEMA. And now SEMA's made some efforts. Uh, John Worziak was the best at that when he was running, in my opinion, of like having an innovation sector and EV sector and trying to create the embrace. But I kind of feel it's a, it's, it's a, uh, a little too late. Uh, and then media wise, we're now friendly with, you know, like we've already done stories with them. So they'll reach out to us and say, hey, we're coming to town for SEMA. They come to LA first. We'll come by and we'll have all the fun for that and party on. Although I did just get back. Uh, I, got, I went to NASCAR, first NASCAR race I've ever been um, at Vegas last weekend. And I kind of hate Vegas personally, but what a fun time, man, that was. Yeah. But yeah, this suburban is anywhere are fun times for sure. It was so much fun. And like, I got to go right. We I got to go with the owner of the Speedway and so like we had police escort in and out and like Jeff Gordon has an icon Bronco and I kept missing him when he'd visit us. So I saw Jeff and, and I was with the Speedway owner. He's like, oh, you got to come finally meet Jeff. So I don't know. I just walked over and start talking to Jeff. They say I turn around. I'm on the damn winner's podium. And I was like <laughs> the one guy in all the press shots who wasn't wearing like a NASCAR baseball hat. And I had absolutely no business being there. But because I was with them, everyone thought they shouldn't kick me out. It was pretty funny. It was a blast. That they're What's so fun about NASCAR is it's so uh, uh, people-oriented. Yes. You, know, you can turn around and bump into Petty, bump into anybody at any given time. It's just a wonderful atmosphere. A bunch of car guys, right? Just yeah. a different set. In such a wide range of demographics and ages, I found it a very kind, very inviting uh, audience. And, and even the race team guys were, were super, super cool. I, I feel that way about NHRA as well, by the way. I, I think that's a fun event to go to. If you've never been, like, I don't care who you are. If you've, if you've never been, as soon as you stand or sit in the grandstands, you could bubble wrap your entire head as soon as one of those cars goes down you're you got a shock on your face and you're like i was not expecting that at all it's it's just it's like to say it's a blast is is a weird pun because of the way those no it nails go. it actually it should be the slogan you should but it's it's it. it's a good time and yeah. every time i go to those events i always see mom and dad with kids and every ticket's a pit pass basically or a panic pass. And I, I just, I just think they're kind of fun events, but I have a great time at IndyCar and, and other events as well. So I think you can make anything a party with the right people and the right attitude. Cause everything's, you know, I always say even like meeting random people, everything's like a lily pad for your life. You, know, you never know one step's going to lead to another. And I can't count the number of times where a casual 
hey, how you doing, turned into some crazy friendship or opportunity for personal life or business. Like I got to go to F1 in Bahrain from a similar experience. And like, that was just batshit. It was so much fun. And that, I never answered your question. That explanation right there is also a telling reason why I'm not attending SEMA this year <laughs> is because those people aren't attending. Therefore, that aspect of what I seek for the SEMA uh, uh, environment isn't there anymore. Yeah, and then even like, you know, they start sending us the, you know, okay, get your tickets now, et cetera. And a, a couple people on my crew were going for different business reasons, but I kind of I checked out. But they wanted, they're like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, we need to see uh, your pay stub and your this. And they're like, I've been going to SEMA for more than 20 years. I'm in the political action committee at SEMA. You, I assume, have software and database, and you could see that, like, we're legit. Oh, no, 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 no. Super officious. And then you go there, and it's Billy Bob and a rascal with his big gulp, whose buddy in town owns a tire store. So he and his eight friends show up. And it's like, I don't understand it. It's like, it's kind of offensive to the original crew. That, that, yes. That's how you know, I throw it out there, too. It's yeah. sad to see that happen. You know, similar thing happened in the watch world with the watches in wonderland or whatever it's called now Basel, the the big big watch show just became a bit stale and comfortable in their leadership position it's like how uber how taxis allowed for the uber business model because they thought they ruled the world and they they got you know they weren't keeping their eye on the boss so hopefully that that doesn't occur but we're already seeing ces you know steal a significant amount of the automotive industry well, we've seen that with a lot of events, you know, Ren Sport, Monterey, Car Week, Goodwood. They're they're kind of stealing the debuts of so many things. But I still have uh, a million friends in the automotive aftermarket, and SEMA is often the only time that I get to uh, connect with them in person and get a little bit of time to find out like what's happening with with the business, and then throughout the year be able to follow up and go, hey, you know, let's let's talk about it, let's get you on the podcast. But it's sort of a content gathering and uh, of me uh, of mine and um so it's still an important part of of what i do here but i don't know sort of from a from an automotive entertainment side of the business you know sort of a content creation side of the business i wish they'd be else. more uh progressive and opening into the public i think that would keep so many more people more and more engaged right because well, it, it, it was know, interesting last year well it, interesting last year having Friday open to the public, you know, they sold tickets to that. And then SEMA Fest this year, I I mean, I want it to go well. I I don't expect the first two, three years to to be a huge hit for, for things like SEMA Fest. But, you know, it's a tough thing to pull off. Um, so, you know, I want to I want to go want to want to check it out. And 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 listen, if, if SEMA finds value in anything that we have to offer we'd like to I offer trust that. I trust they will there's some really good smart people in leadership over there I just think that um, it's such a established organization like any such entity it's sometimes difficult to embrace new ideas and new leadership and, and evolve I just needed a year off yeah yeah um all right so tell us about the Bronx uh the suburban that you're working on oh it's so nuts so it's part of that one-off program, um, uh, the reformer program. And the idea was we took a 1970 three-door Suburban and it was for a repeat client. And he's a very interesting guy and he seems to be highly skilled at pushing me out of my comfort zone. So each project we've done for him is a bit more radical in one direction or another. So this one is... Uh, well, first of all, we turned it into a four-door, which was damn good fun. So we actually finally, I'd always been curious, one of those great automotive mysteries that no one could answer for me is why the hell did it only have three doors? So it turns out, I was told, International Harvester at the time owned the trade dress rights for a four-door, yeah, I don't know what the language was, but like four-door utility vehicle, yada, yada, yada. And in a rare moment of respect, 
or intellectual property amongst the three. Uh, GM decided, okay, fine. We'll do it as a three dome. We'll market it that it's for families, but it's for safety. So we're going to always make sure the kids get out on the curbside. Yeah. Which is total bullshit. They waited until that trade dress expired, or I don't know if they fought it and got it knocked down. But either way, from our perspective, it just seemed asinine to only have three doors. So we hemorrhaged time and money and crafted a fourth door. And then it's on a one-of-one Art Morrison chassis with four-wheel independent suspension with a strange nodular Dana 60 in the rear, Icon six-pot Brembos all the way around, a thousand horsepower conservative atomic Nelson bi-turbo dart block 692 (laughs) with an absurdly built uh, 4L85E tranny. And then the design directive on it was fun, and I got to make it up myself because the client gave me more powertrain and vibe because a dear lost, a dear now departed family member actually worked on the production line for the truck. So he had me put his initials machined into the depressed button on the door handle, but then everything else he kind of let me goober out. So I like doing that, as I mentioned briefly, like revisionist history approach. So to me in 70, for better or worse, domestic transportation design, the pencil pushers were getting a lot of power. And they were really starting to cut back to just good enough or rating the parts bin for elements or design details, you know, scutions, uh, side markers, whatever, from another product that had already been amortized. And then they were also getting hot hot and heavy on dielectric embossed vinyls and super light gauge tin trim. So at the same time in 70, personally, I think Mies van der Rohe was killing it in home goods, electronics, architecture, furniture. So the idea was, I'm going to put myself in the shoes of Mies van der Rohe's and let's play revisionist history by saying, okay, he never did anything in transportation. For my research, nothing, zero, zilch. What if he had been involved in this suburban? What would he have done with the details? So I designed everything from the typography that is consistent and then like all the way up everywhere, every window regulator, the dome lights, every dash knob, the steering wheel, the gauges, um, even the grill is machined one block of billet, one piece, and it's a monster. But it took inspiration from Van der Rohe's like corporate headquarters architecture in that like chunky, blocky, 70s, quasi-brutalist sense that just was begging to be applied to that big brick of that generation suburban. And it's like a dark charcoal with a hint of green, super fine nanoparticle mica metallic offset with the black inset belt line all the way around the window and cargo. And it's it's a absolute monster. It drives so good. It's so much fun. Is it done? Kind of sort of done. We just started doing media drives this week. We still are dealing with, um, in retrospect, I think we should have done air to water, but Tom didn't think we needed to. And so we wrapped the piss out of everything with all the best aerospace people. We have one left. We have one test we're doing right now, which is machining and tapping a bung into a different location in the intake because it's aluminum. And the ambient air temperature sensor is still higher than we really want it to be. But now we're actually thinking where Tom put that sensor is right back in the firewall. And it's, we're hoping an inaccurately high reading. So we're going to run a test sensor in an alternate location, see if that solves it. We're hoping it does. If not, worst case scenario, we're going to have to cut up this absurdly beautiful paint job. And I'm going to have to design a metal intake and scoop situation for air in, air out on the hood which in turn, by the way, we did do that on the Hellcat, anticipating the same drama. But that's really all that's left. Um, We generally put about 1,500, 2,000 test miles on every one-off vehicle we build. It's honestly probably the most critical part of the process. Well, I suppose if we sucked, it wouldn't matter. But in the quality control that it, it really gives us to like every little rattle, every little 
minute thing like caster camber pitch we've we've gone through digitally that only gets you so far and then you start driving it and it always feels great well then you drive in a different scenario and we're like nah actually we need so you know valving changes in the suspension so at some point i have to just realize i'm a goober and i'm never going to be happy i suck at letting cars go so it's like that last three percent especially on one-offs that i should probably accept i'm never going to achieve and no client is ever going to notice or give a shit about but it's just up my butt sideways and like i want it perfect 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 but it's a blessing and a curse because it's never going to nothing's perfect and that's an extension of your product and, and everybody sees it so thank you thank you and, um, and listen uh to to be honest the the aftermarket sees it as well i mean you could go to a pair of jackson auction and you can see 50 Broncos being sold at, at, uh, at Scottsdale. But when an icon Bronco goes up there, you, you, you start to see the money. Yeah. It's super <laughs> cool. Same with bring a trailer. Yeah. So the icon values on bat, like they're selling for more than they cost to build no matter how, what generation they are. And it's, it's, uh, that feels good to see that people understand how differentiated we really are. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, tell us about the uh, Icons of Design, the the charity event that you guys are doing. That's going to be coming up. There's a, there's a way for people to participate, even if they're not in California. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be pretty bad shit. So that's honestly probably one of the also key reasons the Suburban isn't done yet, because I just can't help myself. I want to show it off at this event. But basically, picture the best of Car Week plus traveling around the country to try and find unique owner, independent, creative-driven brands representing and crafting everything from jewelry to watches to shoe wear to denim goods to furniture makers to artists, like, and on and on and on. So it's to benefit my children's charity, which is called Go Campaign, where we basically identify local heroes around the world who are already making an impact in their community. And then we bring them grant money and connect them to our global network of like-minded local heroes and try and help them understand how to run it more like a business. So they're not reliant on grants and donations to continue making an impact. And it, it rocks. I've been on the board at Go for over 10 years. But so we're gonna have Icon, Singer, Emory Motorsports, Velocity, Faraday Future, Rough, Zero Labs, Workshop 5001, Bollinger, Myers Manx, Legend Motors, uh, Old Anvil Speed Shop, Harley with Livewire, Cake, New Legends, Vigilantes, The Electric, Ruffian, like the, just the craziest range of cars that you'd have to blow thousands of both miles and dollars at Car Week in Monterey to see. Uh, and then a, a ton of just wonderful, brilliant, independent brands. And then everyone's selling at the events, kind of like a big holiday shopping extravaganza. And all our vendors are donating 30% to go. And uh, it's uh, music's done by, I don't know if you know Chances with Wolves. You ever stumbled mm -hmm. across those cats? Yeah. Unbelievable. So they're doing a kick-ass nine-hour playlist for us and going to DJ it. And then LA's best food trucks and a full out of control open bar because nothing better than a charity event that gets people <laughs> drunk and then ask them to shop. Yeah. Uh, but my buddies at uh, Restaurant Group 1933, guys that own the Formosa Cafe and Highland Park Bowl and stuff. And it's just going to be a blast. And it's cheap. It's 35 bucks a ticket. Um, iconsofdesign.org. It's sponsored by our buddies at Haggerty. And by William Henry, you know them, the knife makers? Man, they do watches and jewelry and knives. I've been a goober, big fan of their brand. I've been carrying this blade for probably 10 years made by them. <laughs> and they're lovely. They're up in the Pacific Northwest and employ an army of independent artists around the U.S. And they're going to bring their latest and greatest, too. And we're not going to have an online contingent of this show. Uh, it's going to be a November 19th, Sunday from 9 till 4 at Haggerty's new kick-ass uh, garage and social space in the San Fernando Valley in Van Nuys. But if you can't make it, 
we'd love a donation from Mild to Wild. Um, and you can find, yeah, all details at iconsofdesign.org. I'm the super event, The event is Sunday, November 19th. It runs pretty much all day, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. So if you can make it out to the area, like you said, tickets are 35 bucks. You can buy it online. You can go anytime during the day or hang out all day. I guess you could do whatever you'd like. Yeah, it's going to be uh, a really, really wild range of creativity there. It's, it's uh, kind of born around the idea of a show I've always wanted to go to, but I've never found. So I decided to produce it myself. I think it'll be uh, I think it'll be a fun event for sure. And uh, like you said, if you want to just support the cause, you can donate a couple bucks uh, at iconsofdesign.org. Uh, Jonathan, this has been fun. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. And, uh, uh, you know, good luck with the event. And we won't see you at SEMA, but we're going to see you around town for sure. We keep bumping into each other at events all over the place. So always. Uh, um, Thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, you too. Joey, nice to meet you, brother. This is our first engagement. <laughs> Joey Battle. Believe, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it, Bill's screen name is always kind of different than, uh, uh, I don't know why. It's a, some something from long ago, but I don't know. It's <laughs> oh, an inside joke. Man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah My yeah. favorite movie character I've ever played. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, guys. Thanks so much. Until next time, keep the air in the spare and the bag in the wheel. For the latest updates and call-in times, follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CarCast Show. If you'd like to write in, fill out the form on CarCastShow.com. And don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes. CarCast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana. For more information, visit CarCastShow.com. CarCast Show.